Every good mystery begins with a series of clues, and criminologists, even fictional ones like Sherlock Holmes, will somehow link those clues back to a guilty party. I believe there's no perfect crime. I like to think that there's just imperfect crimes waiting to be resolved. Solving crimes has been improved by forensic science, a discipline that can be traced back to the early 1900s to one man, Dr. Edmund Lacard, who became known as the Sherlock Holmes of France. He was a criminologist who pioneered many scientific, repeatable processes that make up modern forensic science. For instance, he formulated the first principle of forensic science, every contact leaves a trace, which is perhaps better known as Lacard's exchange principle. Lacard's forensic science works pretty well for blood, for hair, for even skin cells left at a crime scene. But how does something like that map to the digital world? Understand that up until the mid-1990s, inner connectivity via the internet was largely academic. It really didn't concern commercial organizations until late in the 1990s, until widespread use of the World Wide Web made it possible for organizations to suffer data breaches or denial-of-service attacks. That's when there became an urgent need for digital forensics to become a discrete science. The first suite of digital forensic tools that I became aware of in the early 2000s was the Coroner's Toolkit. It was for Unix systems, and it was created by Dan Farmer and Witsi Venema, who then co-authored a book in 2005 called Forensic Discovery. Like Lacard's principle, if you interact with a digital system, chances are very good that you're leaving traces, even if you think you're erasing your tracks. To be good at digital forensics, to be a digital Sherlock Holmes, you need to understand system architectures, and you need to understand how attackers think. And in a moment, I'll introduce you to someone who's very good at both. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about what happens after the data breach, what happens after the ransomware is on the system, how investigators go about looking for information, and what types of skills they need as practitioners to succeed. We'll even talk about one case in particular where someone paid a ransom, but the decryptor just didn't work. That is, until our guest figured it out. So you're a CISO at a major corporation, and all of a sudden, there's been a ransomware attack on your network, and it's spreading throughout your infrastructure. Maybe your first concern is that the company is functional. Maybe your second thought is to call in an investigative team. You'll want someone with years of pen testing experience, someone who knows the operating system like no other. You'll want an expert. Hi, my name is Paolo Janiszkiewicz and I'm the CEO of Secure. I'm also a Microsoft regional director. It's a very honorable role for someone who is working outside of Microsoft. And uh, my background is uh, pretty straightforward. I deal with cybersecurity for the past 16 years on many different levels, starting with penetration testing, ending up with 
incident response and forensics. So uh, pretty much everything that is important for various customers all around the world. At this year's Sector, an annual security conference in Toronto, Paula gave not one but two talks. Sort of a part one and a part two around the topic of digital forensics. So at Sector, I'm going to be having two sessions this time. One is uh, Adventures in Underland, what your system stores on the disk without telling you. And also a second portion of Adventures in the Underland, and that is the forensic techniques against hackers. So both of the sessions are related with the forensic and look how we are not only able to hide from the hacker perspective the evidence or even destroy it, but how we are able to recover it, get to it from the forensic investigator perspective. So maybe you think you already know something about forensics. I mean, there's that TV show, Crime Scene Investigation, or CSI, which introduced a lot of people around the world to the subject of forensic investigations. But Digital forensics has its own history, its own methods, and it's really nothing like that awful spinoff, CSI Cyber. Yeah, I had to bring that up, didn't I? Forensics, it's a very interesting subject that allows you to dig in into the dungeons of data that's stored on the disk or in the memory, so in general in operating system, that eventually allows you to gain more information about the context within which attack was made. So to become a digital forensics expert, you really need to understand the systems you're looking to examine and all the different ways that they can be corrupted by an attacker. So what led Paula into forensics? Forensics, it's a subject that allows to uh, dig in into something, yes. And um, in my character, I like to research things. So basically, I, I started with the penetration testing, and I still do that. So whenever you perform some attacks, it's always very interesting how on the other side they could be potentially discovered. So um, every hacker has its own mind and uh, every infrastructure has its own context and many components that are never the same. Therefore, every attack is different. And uh, that's why forensics, when we put that into the context, gives you the possibility to work every time with a different situation in a different environment. That's why it's a really good job uh, to do because it's uh, never boring. Maybe it's important to understand a little more about what her company, Secure with a C, does. So my company is focused on lots of things really, but everything around cybersecurity. So we specialize in the custom penetration tests and we do write our own tools to deliver them. And uh, therefore, knowing, of course, how these things are delivered and so on, we also do, and that is a very popular service, especially during the pandemic, something that we call incident response. So when the customer is attacked, they call us and then we come on site or we help remotely. So Secure starts before an attack and it's there for its clients during and after the attack. Right now, only pretty much remotely um, in order to uh, not only investigate what happened in their environment, but also to minimize the scope, uh, how the infrastructure could be potentially affected within the attack. It might be that the attack is happening. Yes. So our job is to figure it out and apply appropriate uh, steps um, of, of actions um, in, the, in the environment. And also uh, we do deliver uh, education uh, and that's something that is like a separate branch from what we do. It's called Secure Academy, where we have over 40 uh, hardcore, I would say, trainings that are written by ourselves in-house. They are both online and offline. 
and uh, they are covering various aspects of cybersecurity. I mentioned that Secure does pen testing as well, so they probably have an arsenal of their own security tools. Yeah, so so we've got a, we've got tools that we have grown in house. So some of the tools, of course, we use that are publicly available or that are commercial, for example, uh, absolutely to automate our tasks. But to perform this uh, sometimes sophisticated moves in the infrastructure, we actually write our own tools. We have 200, over 200 tools that we wrote in-house that we are using to support us in penetration testing. Uh, our custom version of the Mimikatz, of course, it's an edited version of the tool that's written by Benjamin Delpy. But we've got, we've got uh, definitely much, much more tools that we have like written from zero, from the scratch uh, in-house. These are the tools that are allowing us to um, be more smooth in projects. So sometimes when there is a need to extract some information from somewhere that could get you some somewhere farther, then it's really possible that you're going to find a custom tool in the internet somewhere that's going to do that for you. Of course, it's more and more happening like this, but still, if you get a certain need, it's better when you address it by yourself. These one-off specialty tools aren't just for secure, and they're not just developed by Paula. The tools are open source, and Paula has a team of experts that help build these tools. That's why it's really good to work with a team and our team it's pretty pretty um it's actually very good if it's about the cooperation with each other so we understand each other we know what kind of things someone may want in the project and eventually um that kind of a teamwork that kind of cooperation is something that uh, allows us to to just move forward and uh, this is what i'm what i'm always saying and what i would always appreciate in cyber that However, that sounds, of course, sharing is, is caring and the more information we're able to share mainly within our team, but also to the outside world, um, the obviously the better. I should also mention that forensics can be used in other ways and not just for incidents that have already happened, but also for events that you suspect might be happening in the moment. Like maybe you think an employee is doing something, but you don't yet have the evidence to take them to HR just yet. Forensics you will bring to the organization while you just want to investigate what has happened. So that may, for example, involve employee that is in some kind of a way misbehaving, but it's its default role, it's uh, of course focusing on the attack. Plus forensics, it's not always something that someone might decide on. It's just enough to recover. It's sometimes just enough to get into simple conclusions. More important for companies sometimes it's to be back to the normal operations and to learn to invest and so on, that's something that can happen in a bit of a more paced activity. Paula's experience as a Microsoft Regional Director comes in handy in her work. In addition to her knowledge of Windows, she's equally versed in Linux and other operating systems as well. We are talking here about Windows, Linux operating systems, and also pretty much any operating system that has been under attack. It's not always possible to um, do an extensive research depending on the operating system and depending on the data that we have. That's why it's so important to be well prepared for the attack from the monitoring perspective so that later on we are able to extract the data, extract the evidence and connect more dots in order to learn what was the potential point of entry. So. Windows has this utility, Remote Desktop Protocol, which allows, say, someone from Microsoft support to remotely take over your computer and diagnose something that has gone wrong. In the hands of someone good, 
That's not a problem. You can invite them in and then dismiss them afterwards. But in the hands of someone bad, where they access RDP on their own, that's really not good. Uh, RDP itself, it's not wrong. Yes, because it's a way how we are remotely connecting to the server. Um, it has its own disadvantages. Like, for example, you are you loading the full profile settings, but that still that could be also restricted and so on. So it's better, for example, to leverage things like the PowerShell remoting and so on. But regardless, the situation for all of these things, we need username and password. So the question is, of course, how do we log in as a privileged account in our organization? Yes, because we might be logging on with a smart card. And that is also another way to do that. So we are here having uh, things like multi-factor authentication, something we know, so the pin to the smart card, the password, eventually something that we have. So that's the smart card that we will need for that. So eventually um, we, can, we can we can figure out better ways of, of accessing the infrastructure versus just a regular RDP, which is prone to the password spray attack. In the real world, attacks just don't start with some killer zero-day exploit. They typically start with something rather basic, like stolen user credentials, username and password. Someone sprays the credentials on a system until they get inside, and then they sit on that system, maybe pivoting around the infrastructure, learning the system before they actually exploit it. Absolutely. So, so every attack has its stages, right? So uh, when we think about um, attack in a super classic way, then eventually it nowadays the most popular point of entry would be phishing. It's actually in approximately 60% of the attacks. So user gets a link, user gets an email, user clicks on that link, opens an attachment. Yep, so, so runs a macro, so these kind of things. And then hacker is becoming a user. Now, question is, what kind of things we can do as a user? User might be connected using VPN to the infrastructure. Great. Then we are treating user machine as a proxy. We are pivoting, it's called VPN pivoting. Yes? So we are going through that user machine to the inside of the infrastructure. And then we search for the low hanging fruits. If the user has access to data, we are getting access to data. If the user stores passwords in the browser, we got that. If the user is a local admin, that's even better. Maybe we are able to perform some pass the hash attack, or maybe not because someone is randomizing the local admin's password. The point is someone gains access to a network, no matter what level of initial access, and then they escalate those privileges as needed. And often this is done as a result of an internal misconfiguration, say, between two segments of a network. So there are so many points of entry afterwards. So once this first wall is kind of passed through, then we are able to see all this infrastructure, beautiful details that are allowing us to connect the dots again and then maybe uh, move forward. Like, for example, one of the attacks from zero to hero, it's SMB Relay. Another one is curb roasting. Being a user, it's totally possible. So eventually that. We couldn't really call vulnerabilities that someone could exploit, but more misconfiguration. And the biggest vulnerability, I think, it's actually a misconfiguration. What's important here is that these high-profile attacks take time. We see the headlines that X company got breached, or more recently got hit with ransomware. But what we don't see are the weeks and months before when the attackers first got into the network. So what kind of resources companies using? What are the low-hanging fruits? What are the easy targets? What would be valuable from their perspective to encrypt and then ask for the ransom? Yeah? So eventually, like that time that hackers are there, it's, it's quite long. And eventually, when we compare that one with the 
initial point of entry security log, then if we don't realize that hackers managed to get in yesterday, then it's already too late. So putting a little bit of stats on the top of that, the, the former um, FBI director, James Comey, he said actually that hackers are sitting in infrastructure for approximately 200 days. And when I take that stat and put it into our projects, this is exactly what we see. Yeah, sometimes we see hackers sitting in infrastructure for three months. Sometimes you can see that the first engagement, first signs that they were there, is like from half a year ago. And uh, th that's scary because then means that these people had like so much time to investigate what to attack. And then that's why these attacks later are considered to be very precise. But they are like this because they had a time to, um, to, to figure it out before. It seems pretty simple. We know how they get inside. We know that they look around and then they exploit. So why can't we detect these attacks sooner? The problem is that amount of attacks just simply increased. For example, according to FBI summarizing pandemics, um, they are saying that amount of uh, reported attacks um, has increased by 300 percent. And Interpol sums it up by like 569 percent. And so we definitely see the crazy growth in the in the attacks. And the thing is that it's not that infrastructures are worse or something like this. No, infrastructures are relatively the same. But the thing is that when someone sees that attacks are working and at the same time it is truly lucrative business, then we just see more of those coming. That's why companies started to rethink right now their cybersecurity strategy. They started to build up additional solutions, implement solutions that are allowing us to minimize the risk. That's why um, we talk about monitoring right now, but from the needs perspective, nothing has changed for the past like 20 years. One of the really fun aspects of Paula's talks at Sector is talking about the attack from the attacker's perspective. If you're going to do something on another system, how might you do it? You need a point of egress. How are you going to get in in the first place? Is it a phishing campaign? Is it vulnerability you can exploit? Then once you're in, how are you going to cover your tracks? Yeah, so there are many ways how we are able to hide our tracks. First of all, by just deleting them. Yeah, so eventually we can, if we use certain profile, we can delete that profile. If we use uh, some most recently used items, which we do naturally when we are logged in in the operating system like Windows, then basically we could also uh, delete that. We've got a possibility to play with permissions. So, for example, if you want to achieve persistency, um, to uh, have uh, some service, for example, that will be continuously doing something for us, but we don't want anybody to see that service, then by using the SDDL language, so to define permissions, uh, we are able to apply the security descriptor so the service, for example, will not be visible in any of the searches. Remember Lacard's first principle of forensic science. Every contact leaves a trace. By deleting a log file, there may still be a reference to it somewhere else. Consider the Lost Library of Alexandria. This was the greatest library ever built in the ancient world. Despite the common belief that it burned down, it actually fell to neglect. But the point here is that its contents were destroyed over time, lost. We know from other records in ancient world places what those books contain. The same can be said for computer records on a system. For an investigator, there are other references. You just have to know how to find them. 
That's why it's so important to have in the infrastructure well-established monitoring, which you forward, you stream out into some central location, and this is where you process it. Yeah, so this is the time we are stepping into, or we already stepped into it. And when we do forensics, when we do internal incident response, lack of these kind of mechanisms, um, well, it, it could make our job a bit better if, um, or, or support us in a better way if we were able to correlate events across workstations, servers, and so on without really getting into every server, every machine, and verifying what kind of stuff it's there left. Yeah, but wait a minute. I see in the movies how a bad guy just deletes the logs and then gets away with it. As an investigator, though, deletion is something you can look for, right? Absolutely. So so you are able, for example, to make simple queries that are allowing you to ask questions like, uh, show me on what kind of workstations slash servers this process has been executed, or which machine connected to this IP address. So th these, these questions are super natural, and not that they were not asked like 20 years ago. They were completely asked 20 years ago. And when we had the same needs in terms of monitoring, at that time, like we got right now. We see a lot of news today about ransomware. Ransomware is certainly the big topic. So what about that other thing, solar winds, supply chain? What I'm seeing within the supply chain um, attacks is that we can see more of a trend that the certain customer is attacked through the vendor. So it's more of that. So not necessarily vendor software, which is definitely also the trend, and based on the couple of examples that we got within the world, like solar winds and so on, but we also see the trend of attacking the IT company that supports that customer. So the, there is a large customer enterprise. Of, obviously, they got many IT companies that support them. Uh, some of them are supporting their databases. Some of them, they are supporting their network and so on. Sometimes security is outsourced, regardless of the situation usually privilege access management is not implemented properly for these guys and therefore what the hackers do they attack the vendors and through them they come to the major uh, customer and uh, we we see that happening of course it's not like a number one trend yet the number one trend is uh, simply through phishing um lack of like multi-factor authentication uh, or some even vulnerable services that are available in the internet that someone could exploit. But that is a very nice way to attack the company because it's quite unexpected. Security has always been a double-edged sword, literally. We've seen this before where tools were developed for good can also be used for bad. Consider a kitchen knife. You can cut a loaf of bread, that's good. Or you could stab someone, that's certainly bad. Maybe that's a bit extreme, but I think you get the idea. It really depends what kind of things we would like to do. We've got, for example, Outruns, which is by Internals by Mark Krasinovich, where we've got a possibility to see that persistency. But on the other hand, if you change the permissions, then you are not able to see a couple of things, like, for example, from the, from the services perspective, that they are there. So every tool has its own cheating mechanism. yeah, And uh, eventually it might be not worth to... Uh, even develop it. Maybe it's not there available in the form of a tool. But what my point is that every solution has its a solution against. And um, eventually in Windows, what you can also do, you can hide logs. So Paul and her team has encountered some common ways to do this. Every application has its own 
better or worse mechanism that allows you to lock something. Yeah? Windows are the same, Linux the same, and so on. So what is the most important thing is to make sure that we are gathering this data somewhere, because what if locally it gets cleaned? Or more innocent scenario, what if it rolls over? So for example, you are setting up the log that's going to be only 100 megabytes large or something like this. And this is an application or systems default for some of the cases. And then eventually, for example, for security log in Windows, it's, it's super small. So persistence here is waiting out the amount of memory allocated to a given log file, waiting for it to reset so that the records of your activity are overwritten. So whenever we got this situation, then like we, we can survive on the log a day or two or three depends on how active certain servers would be. So from the investigator's perspective, it's literally nothing taking into consideration the trend that we are dealing with right now. So let's maybe uh, mention that one for the moment to compare with the need of monitoring. The trend is very simple right now. Uh, hackers are connected to the environment um, maybe through phishing, maybe through the password spray attack. It doesn't really matter right now, but when they are there, then what they are doing, they are performing their research. Within Windows NT file system, the USN journal or update sequence number journal, or sometimes even the change journal, maintains a record of the changes made to the volume. It should keep track of any changes. However, when it's gone, it's gone. You can, for example, clean the USN journal uh, so that is hiding your traces because uh, like one of the major points uh, to search for when you are analyzing the drive, you will look into the USN journal. And when it's not there, it's hard to uh, figure out what kind of files were dropped in the disk that were maybe executed and they are no longer there. Given her work, Paula must have stories to tell. I mean, when I interviewed her, she just returned from Abu Dhabi. There must be a story there, right? You know, like, there are so many stories that are happening right now that we are participating in. And eventually, whenever we are thinking about the, the whole, um, like, pandemic period, for sure, incident response has been a number one thing that we've been participating in. So long story short, um, there are many, yeah, but some of them are just quite simple. Yes, uh, it's not shocking anymore that we are taking part into the incident response within the company that has users being domain admins. Yeah, so th there are many stories like this. Um, of course, when we discover that we are like yet another example like this, but um, but uh, all of these stories are very similar, I would say. Yeah, so we've got an attack through phishing and so on, and then this attack spreads in a very unwanted way. Yeah, but I'm thinking there must be one story that rises to the very top. Absolutely. Uh, during the pandemics, uh, we've been participating in a super exciting project, which I would call a project of the year, because uh, there was actually a customer uh, that is uh, very big. It's a set of uh, various factories uh, producing goods that are spread across the whole world. So this is a large company with many satellite facilities around the world. The network then is critical, especially during a worldwide pandemic. That was a time where um, the, most of the countries were in lockdown. So that was a springtime uh, 2021. And um, the thing was that even though the travel was banned, we could still travel on the various government passes because 
what happened over there was really critical, not only for the company itself, but also to the economy of a certain country. So this becomes critical infrastructure for a nation. And someone's deposited ransomware on that network, shutting them down. So uh, long story short, when we get on site, what it appeared is that uh, through the vendor, uh, that customer uh, has been attacked. So hackers first attacked the vendor, uh, possessed the domain admin credentials, took them, logged, logged to the customer's repositories, stayed there for three weeks, and then started to encrypt their data, so their environment. So the, the infrastructure was pretty smashed, and that included their database that was crucial um, resource of knowledge for marking, making various decisions in this organization. And uh, unfortunately, for that resource, that was quite also surprising. They did not have a good backup strategy. So even though they would recover um, from that uh, backup, then that da- that data would not be complete. So um, that was a very unwanted state when they realized that they actually have to pay the ransom. Despite all the advice to the contrary, sometimes companies do find themselves in a position where they have to pay the ransom. But what they get in return, the key, sometimes doesn't always work. And there was a negotiator company um, hired for that purpose, and they managed to negotiate to pay a half a million euros. So that was quite a huge amount for what they got, because in the response, they got the decryptor that simply wasn't working for all the data that was encrypted. So you pay quite a lot of money for something that you cannot really use. Not trying to take sides here, but had the situation been different, the decryptor would have worked and released the data. But the encryption process was done on a live database, one that was changing as the encryption process was occurring. And the problem was, and that was my job within the project, that eventually um, that decryptor it had a good implementation of the algorithm allowing to decrypt the data. But the problem was when the, when the data was encrypted, it was encrypted a couple of times because of the faulty encryptor. So the ransomware was just badly written. So imagine that when you've got a database that is in use, then the ransomware comes in, starts to encrypt it, then it crashes because the data is in use and then it goes again and again and again. And then this is how the data is encrypted like three, four, five times. And eventually it's broken. And when you got a decryptor that only does it in one round in a certain way, because there are a couple of other uh, components uh, included, then basically it's simply not working. This sounds dire. An incomplete backup combined with a broken decryptor. The customer is still without their database. Fortunately, Paula and her team were able to rebuild the decryptor and eventually release all the data. So our job was to decompile the decryptor, fix it, understand the mechanism. Uh, so we were playing a bit of a help desk role for the hackers, actually. Uh, and, uh, and it was working. And we managed to actually get access to 100% of the customer's data. But uh, it was a bit of a uh, bra- brainy uh, <laughs> project because we had to figure out what is behind the uh, cryptography that's used by the by the attackers. But uh, luckily, it worked out. It was a, quite a relief. <laughs> so what does Paula suggest for someone looking to become a forensics investigator, say, the next digital Sherlock Holmes? 
So if you want to uh, build your career uh, as a forensics investigator, one thing you for sure have to have is a great knowledge about operating system internals. So however operating system works, that's something that could not or shouldn't really surprise you. So any possible place that information could be stored, that's something that should come to you as a default knowledge. Now, whenever we think about some other concepts over here, being penetration tester or having the background of the penetration testing, I think it's always good to know more. Yeah, And um, to be a good forensic investigator, you need to know how hackers work and how these attacks are delivered. So for example, if you are investigating something and you see that there is a certain correlation of activities in logs, and they, for example, represent, let's say, pass the ticket uh, attack, which is also quite hard to uh, discover, then you know how it works and you know what to search for and you know that identity could be stolen in many different ways. Therefore, uh, you are able to conclude. So that penetration testing activity, it's, uh, in my opinion, absolutely important just to avoid to be static forensic investigator, but to be able to more dynamically interpret the situation in the infrastructure. And should you strive to become a generalist, a jack of all trades, or is there still value in being a specialist? Absolutely. There are many areas of specialization. Uh, one is, uh, of course, uh, mobile devices. Another one is, for example, network, which is different than the operating system sphere. And um, we need to know uh, a bit about everything, that's for sure. We need to be good at one or more items over here. That's why um, having that kind of a deep knowledge, it's sometimes even hard to get as a one person. So when you do the forensics for, and that is actually a bigger project then usually it's not a one person doing it, but every specializes, every, every person specializes in a, in a certain uh, technology. So mobile devices are very specific, uh, network also, uh, systems also. So yeah, these, these things, of course, might be combined, but to have someone really, really good, it's hard to have someone being good at these all of these spheres. Yeah. Apart from becoming a pen tester, a digital forensics expert, what does Paula recommend organizations do to improve their overall security? Well, uh, for sure, uh, good privilege access management is the key to success. So that's one thing. Monitoring identity has never been like so important than right now. Yeah, so it's more important than ever. So anything that will discover the anomalies of the identity being, in some sense, misusing the infrastructure, that's the way to go. Also, multi-factor authentication, that is a must nowadays. Conditional access, understanding where people are logging on and how, definitely something to pay attention to. And also, one of the, I think, most important things, it's monitoring and preventing running the... Um, the, the code in general that we don't know. So simply speaking, uh, allow listing implemented in servers, on servers, workstations that are preventing uh, running executables that are there for the first time and we did not uh, eventually approve. Perhaps now, like never before, with all the threats in the world, is a good time for companies to get serious with their security policies and establish good habits. Cybersecurity is very understaffed. So there is much, much more projects that we are able 
on the globe to handle. So it's even better when the customers uh, implement all the good security solutions because it's really good to see that um, companies can approach with um, with the good maturity to cybersecurity and develop that strategy that from time to time, I mean, it's gonna it's it's, it's gonna grow definitely in time. But now, even though the company starts that process, it's still good to see that there are the simple things that we are able to implement. Like, for example, attack service reduction rules. Yeah, so that's free. You are able to implement it on a platform. Uh, like, I see completely no reason why we're not supposed to use this and so on. So that that kind of things minimize the risk. And it's all about that risk being minimized so that eventually companies are not um, seen as, uh, as juicy targets for, for hackers. I'd like to thank Paula for sharing her experience and stories about digital forensics. I'd like to think that criminals can't get away with their crime. Like Lacard's principle, there's always something left behind that a good investigator can find and later piece together. Of course, that requires a good investigator like Paula and her team. Let's keep the conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on Reddit or Discord. The deets are available at hackermind.com. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial free, by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I remain your digital Arthur Conan Doyle, Robert Vimosi.